And I have this one little story in, in the in the book in Dabo's world where uh, one of the, the the key donor the key donors he had already given some money uh, to build a new locker room and and he and his wife were adamant that you know they they weren't going to give any more money and uh, and ultimately. Um, Dabo gets on, gets on a plane and goes and visits him, uh, I think on like the, the outer banks there in South Carolina and, uh, just knocks on the door and, and goes and, and sort of, uh, and sells his vision of what Clemson can become if they have the right facility. And they, uh, uh, end up eating some pizza together and they're out looking over the Atlantic ocean and by the end of the meeting, uh, the, 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 the donor basically said, how much money do you need? And then as he left, as he, as he left, the wife looks to the husband and said, do you think we gave him enough money? <laughs> I mean, it's just unbelievable. What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South Podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Well, I'm fired up, man. Great, great slate of SEC games. And for the first time since, when was it? 2019 Citrus Bowl, I will be at one of those SEC games. LSU, Kentucky this weekend in Lexington. You going to Chad Kroger Field? Chad Kroger Field, as many people call it. Yes, I will be there. LSU, Kentucky should be a fun one. Picked a good weekend to go experience a Kentucky, a Kentucky atmosphere for the for the first time. Gonna have some fun, spend some time with some family, see some old friends, perhaps some new friends. Little teaser there. A lot of things in the works for the weekend in Lexington. More important though, Will, how should I mentally prepare myself for the experience of watching LSU football? Like, am I am I, am I allowed to laugh in the press box? when Kentucky does the backyard football thing of only rushing one and then dropping everyone else into coverage? Um, you gotta laugh, you really gotta laugh. If I wasn't emotionally invested, I would watch even more LSU football than I do because it's objectively hilarious. Uh, I feel like I could start at center for LSU. Uh, I, I feel like it's it's very funny because the you know, pass offense is fine and they just will not run the football. So yeah, definitely don't be like those Nebraska guys who are punching the table. It's, you got this is gonna be a goofy game. Um, let me know if you see Flocka, man. Get a little Flocka selfie in there. That was a great callback there to the Nebraska press box, which is one of a kind. Love hearing those those table pounding moments when a six yard run against Nebraska happens, and those people that are in the back row who are seventy five years old who just cannot believe their eyes to see Nebraska <laughs> allow anybody gain a first down. Just a, such a crazy thought. Could see a lot of that with the Kentucky side. We're going to get to that game, of course. Great weekend ahead. Great pot ahead. We've got longtime college football writer and author Lars Anderson joining us in a little bit here. We've got our usual picks, over-unders, plus a little bold and brashed close. But first, I can't get enough of the Texas Pete Wing sauce. I just can't. Right after we record this, I'm going to bust out the air fryer. I'm going to cook up some chicken thighs. Got to mix it up from chicken breasts every once in a while. Can't just always do the chicken breasts. And I'm gonna douse them in some Texas Pete wing sauce. That's what I do, little cucumbers, little peppers on the side, gotta get those veggies in there as well. Dip those also in the wing sauce. Money in the bank, cannot go wrong. This is the perfect time of year to load up on some Texas Pete, not only because it's football season, but also because right now for our listeners, texaspeat.com, you know the drill. They've got recipes, they've got t-shirts, they've got hats, they've got hot sauces by the box. 
if you do that, you can get 20% off your entire order with the promo code Saturday Down South. That is all one word. All you got to do, texaspeat.com, promo code Saturday Down South. Sauce like you mean it. All right, Will. Week six, we got picks, we got over unders. Let's start with a game that could have had a lot more buzz if one of these teams had won or kept it close last weekend, but they didn't. Number 13, Arkansas on the road. Number 17, Ole Miss. Ole Miss is a five and a half point favorite. The over-under I have, six references to Matt Corral's six interception game last year. I've got some thoughts on that. Remember how I said a couple weeks ago, Corral greater than Tyne Rattler, right? Like that was, that's the take. We're just going to mm-hmm. stick to that. If you just three simple words, symbols, whatever you want to call them. Matt Corral, better quarterback than Spencer Rattler. I've got another Matt Corral take. Even after the loss this past weekend to Alabama, where, let's be honest, Bryce Young outplayed him, I actually still like Matt Corral's Heisman chances. Mm -hmm. He is only plus 250 on FanDuel. And he's number two behind Bryce Young, of course, who leapfrogged him. And now Bryce Young is at plus 125. Corral really did not play that poorly against Alabama. He didn't have a pick in that game. He made some ridiculously good plays, some of which happened in garbage time, so they're really not going to see the light of day when you're down 21 points or you know, 28 points, whatever it was when he made those plays. But at the same time, he is sitting there right now, having played four games, he has yet to throw an interception. Everybody in the preseason, what about all those grenade games? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, look, guy's like a 71% passer. He is, accuracy is not his issue. Y'all are looking way too far into this. And he talked about the drop eight coverage and how he's fixed that. That's been well documented. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a second here with Arkansas and coming full circle with that. But Matt Corral is sitting there right now with 16 total touchdowns. He is tied for the SEC lead in rushing scores. That means Corral is on pace for 48 touchdowns in a 12 game regular season. Alabama already in the rearview mirror as well. If Matt Corral hits 50 touchdowns, which in that offense seems very possible, Mm -hmm. his Heisman chances are real. Very real. Oh, yeah. If you are excluding Texas Tech air raid quarterbacks... You the have only to. time. Look, for the for you the for to. the air games, yes. you have to get rid of whatever wherever Mike Leach is. And for the ground games, you know, you gotta respect the troops. You gotta you gotta get them out of there. Even Cliff Kingsbury. Yeah, you can't include any of those because if you're throwing 50 to 60 times a game, all right, that, that's that's a little bit skewed there. Mm-hmm. The only time, if you take away those those Texas Tech air raid quarterbacks, the only other time that power five quarterback has hit 50 touchdowns in the regular season and not won the Heisman. Will, do you know the answer to this? Okay, taking out all those random guys. Uh, oof. You said, was it FBS? Just Power 5. We're talking okay, Power, power 5. Because then five, you get okay. into like BYU numbers. Yeah. Um, oh, dang. Brennan. Let's see. Yeah, no, I, that was going to be my guess. I yeah, Actually, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Total touchdowns? That really doesn't even factor in rushing. Um, Gosh, the, man. Total touchdowns is factoring in. No, rushing, no, no, no. So I know, just, I know. But yeah. I'm like thinking of mobile quarterbacks. I'm like, those guys really don't get to total touchdowns. Mm-hmm. I, I, would it be Tebow? Well, Tebow won the Heisman, hitting that 50 mark. And oh. became the first sophomore to do that. Yeah, I was saying so after we're talking, that, though. Yeah. Yeah, so the only ones who have hit that mark and then not won the Heisman. Because Tebow never hit 50 again after mm. that. That was, that was his best statistical year, 2007, even though... They were nine and three, and that's the other kind of part to this argument of like, oh, well, do you need to be on a playoff contender to win the Heisman? Tebow, two thousand seven, Lamar Jackson, twenty sixteen. But the only ones to answer the question, 
you had Jalen Hurts and Justin Fields in 2009. Why okay. didn't they win the Heisman? Joe Burrow. And then Who had like 60 20, touchdowns. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then 2018, Dwayne Haskins hit 50, but Kyler Murray hit 50 that same year. And of course we remember he hit 50, I believe it was in the Big 12 championship as well. So keep that in mind because for whatever reason, voters view that 50 as an important benchmark to be able to hit. And maybe some of that gets taken away a little bit because of how recently multiple guys have been able to do that. But Corral might have missed out on that golden opportunity to have a 2019 Joe Burrow, 2012 Johnny Manziel, or 2010 Cam Newton type moment by beating Alabama in Tuscaloosa in route to the Heisman. But he could follow the Lamar Jackson route, which I'm not saying that he is Lamar Jackson as a runner or as an athlete or anything like that. But Lamar Jackson played for a 9-3 team. Mm -hmm. He hit 50 touchdowns in the regular season, and he went viral a bunch, which that's a key caveat here. Bryce Young is great. Bryce Young's tremendous. I think Mike Corral actually has more viral ability in that offense with some of the stuff that, that Kiffin and Levy like to do than Bryce Young has. Bryce Young's been like quietly a little bit more of a game manager. Two big time wins he has had in which he has not had a chunk play this year already with at Florida and then the home game this past weekend against Ole Miss. So again, not saying that it's absolutely gonna happen or anything, but the reason I bring that up now is because if Matt Corral is gonna follow that Heisman narrative, it kind of starts again with a game like this weekend against Arkansas. Number two in FBS against the pass. That is what Barry Odom's defense has done extraordinarily well. Mm -hmm. Everyone remembers last year's one-armed bandit game. Shout out Grant Morgan, friend of the program. For Corral, he said that was the turning point in his career. Lane left him out there and didn't bench him in that one. And that gives you a different type of confidence. And knowing what he went through coming into the season where people like myself were banging the drum for John Rice Plumley to be the guy, that moment kind of matters for you if you see that faith in your head coach and in your offensive coordinator. So far, Matt Corral has lit up drop eight coverage. And I think as crazy as it sounds, as much as Barry Odom would just love to run it back with that game plan that he had last year, you're gonna have to mix up looks. You're just gonna have to. It can't just be the game plan that you used last year and it can't even be the game plan that you used against A&M because Ole Miss can still run the football despite the struggles that they had last week against Alabama. On the Arkansas side, I'm a little bit worried about KJ. That knee, man, I was, I was hoping to see a little bit more from him against a really good Georgia defense, obviously an all-world Georgia defense, but I think Ole Miss's defense is better prepared to handle a one-dimensional offense. And if KJ can't really use his legs, this group becomes a lot more predictable if you can't rely on him for the RPOs. And that's dangerous. I think if that happens on the Arkansas side, we see Kendall Bryles take a page out of Dan Mullen's playbook. Well, easy. I was ready, I was ready for the sarcastic <laughs> comment there. So he's gonna lose to a team that he shouldn't lose to? Um, <laughs> you know it, I'm not gonna say anything because you know the brand. Okay. What I mean by that <laughs> is that I think Kendall Bryles could bring in Malik Hornsby for maybe a series or two to try and get the ground game going if it is struggling, just so that you you make the, the defensive end have to try and commit on some of those RPOs and just kind of keep them guessing a little bit. Maybe Hornsby is a little bit like pre-2021 Emory Jones where he's brought into some of those spots. Great matchup, and I don't think Arkansas is some fraud if they lose this game by any stretch because Ole Miss is good. All right, Ole Miss, really good football team. The defense is improved. They're flirting with mediocrity. But I'm taking Ole Miss to win by a touchdown with a bounce back game from Corral, Kiffin, and Levy. 
who just all they want to do this weekend is get the burnt popcorn taste out of their mouths. <laughs> Will, how do you see this playing out? Love that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there with Corral. You know, who among us hasn't had a devastating loss to Alabama? I, I, we're at a point where, like, that game almost doesn't get held against you, especially in the Heisman conversation. And and I think as far as, you know, what you said, I think is accurate that it's not about having these big, gaudy touchdown numbers for Corral. It's about shaking this stigma of him being this turnover machine, him being this reckless guy that basically throws all these 50-50 balls. And, you know, if you're a writer, if you don't watch a ton of Ole Miss, it's like, well, yeah, of course he has all these touchdowns. He's in this Lane Kiffin offense, and he just lets his guys make plays, and he has all these mistakes. And so, yeah, I think that this is going to be an interesting game for him. Um, I, I love, you know, you touched on this too, the versatility of defense. I think that base defense has just totally gone out of the window, especially in the mm-hmm. SEC and in big-time leagues. We saw what happened with Brent Venables, who's married to that four-down front. And I think that, you know, I love seeing, especially, like, and it kind of also, like, happened with Mike Leach coming to the SEC. It's It's been happening for a while, but it's almost like the game planners in the SEC were like, okay, well now we have this weird offense we gotta see. So let's start incorporating some things to where we don't just have to totally change our game plan. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy how they're really keying in on, especially this year, what quarterbacks quarterbacks are successful at. And talking about KJ Jefferson, I think you're absolutely right. It was beautiful, or sorry, it was brutal. Totally different word. Brutal to watch him against. (laughs) (laughs) It was not beautiful. Uh, Brutal to watch him against that Georgia team. He looked hobbled. He he couldn't get anything going. And the Ole Miss defense um, definitely is a defense that can kind of smell blood. You know, when things start going their way, they can start, you know, they really like. What a sentence. Right. I didn't think that we'd be saying that in 2021, but I kind of think you're right. Yeah, the Land Sharks are back, baby. They're out there, you know, they're they're laying some wood. They're the, the kind of defense that is very, you know, back and forth. And you can see, obviously, um, it's no secret, Arkansas's offense is not quite what Alabama's is. KJ Jefferson is not quite Bryce Young. I think that they have some, like, great schematics, but with a quarterback like that, who we both love KJ Jefferson, he's played his tail off this year, but they're not going to be two-dimensional in the way that Bama was, and they're not going to have these crazy, you know, athletes um, on the outside, um, especially, you know, and, and really the official year one of the Sam Pittman thing. I know he was there last year, but in terms of getting his guys in there in a regular year. So, yeah, I, I think that you're probably wise to pick Ole Miss there. I would say at the top, you said that this game lost a little bit of luster. I, I think it honestly gained more luster because if one of these teams had won, you know what I'm saying, then there's a clear divide between these two teams. You know, if Arkansas hmm, beats Georgia sure. or even keeps it close, I think this is a real – I mean – Second place in the SEC West is wide open, man. Uh, this is the, the silver medal game in the SEC West right now. I, I hate to say it, but it's like, hey, the honorary Texas A&M game. The silver medal game. <laughs> so, like, yep. yeah. I mean, so it's like, who's A&M is now kind of out of that conversation as well. So it's like, Easily. these are these are both teams that it would be a huge thing for them if they were to finish second in the SEC West. And that's not me joking, especially Arkansas. But I, I think that this is a big time line of demarcation game. And it's, it's one of the biggest games of the year because you could see either of these teams struggling down the stretch or the season going a certain way but at the same time i think it's pretty pretty fair to say a cooked would you agree with that yes a&m is cooked there's, yeah. there's no doubt about it and they're they're going to be 0-3 in sec play after this weekend spoiler alert that is my pick for the for that game in case there was any doubt two things that i i think is uh worth keeping in mind with this game um new year six bowl yep Going to a New Year's Six Bowl matters for both of these programs with what they have been through in the latter half of the decade. Matters for those fan bases. Matters more to those fan bases than, say, a program like Florida, who has been there, not to say Florida fans don't care. I'm saying Florida fans, they've seen that three consecutive years. 
Mm-hmm. All right. And, and that's that's part of the conversation about how motivated is Florida going to be now having suffered that second loss and knowing, hey, that's like the only thing that you're playing for, even though you've accomplished that each of the last three seasons. Playing for that for Arkansas and for Ole Miss, I think that I think that matters. I think that matters to both of those coaching staffs. And I, I think that that's something that is very much on the line in a game like this and how big that can be to have that in your back pocket. If Arkansas wins this game, we're talking about an Arkansas team that has beat three top 25 teams mm-hmm. to start off in the first half of the schedule, which would be really impressive. And especially with the way that Texas has kind of picked things up. One other thing that I want to, one thing to kind of close the book on the, the Matt Corral Heisman thing that I should have brought up and I didn't. You talk about the, the mistake, like showing you can overcome those mistakes. Mm-hmm. Baker Mayfield 2016, home game, Ohio State. That was the game in which the Austin game. Kendall, yeah, Austin Kendall goes into that game and calls the Ohio State defense basic, and then the Ohio State defense just puts it on Oklahoma, and it was an ugly one in Norman. And Baker Mayfield had a really rough day. The following year in Columbus is the plant the flag game, the game that kind of really allowed Baker to take off. Different okay. stakes here. But it's, it's kind of, that's the type of game that can make us think, even if you're a household name, oh, you are different. You are at a different type of level than what we were saying of you. This, in, in a, in a, on a smaller stage, can be that type of game for Matt Corral. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go to uh, the team that we just brought up there, Florida, who is a 38 and a half point favorite at home against Vandy. The over-under I have, four Kentucky mentions on the broadcast. That's right. I think we're going to get a lot of, hey, do you get the bad taste out of your mouth in this one? This game is all about moving past Kentucky if you're Florida. The odds makers, they clearly think it'll happen. So disrespectful to say that Vandy won't ride the UConn momentum. They're daring you to take those points. I think Ken Seals looked pretty good against Florida last year. I also think Ken Seals just had to put together a last minute drive at home to survive against UConn. So (laughs) both of those things worth keeping in mind. Dan, Dan Mullen is really fortunate the way that the schedule broke down and he is going to benefit probably in a different sort of way than ed odron who we're going to get to in a little bit and why this is such a tricky stretch for him because this should be a comfortable win we should Mm -hmm. see more anthony richardson you're at home maybe emory has a mistake-free game mullen needs a laugher badly if he were facing a middle of the pack sec team this week i'd kind of be worried about that he is Will, this is a stat that you know, and many people who are not Mullen supporters have pointed this out in the last few days. Let's hear it. Dan Mullen, Dan Mullen in his last six games against Power 5 competition is 1-5. in five. That is not good. That is going back to last year, of course, the Marco Wilson thrown shoe game. Tennessee is the only Power 5 victory in that stretch. Here's the good news if you're Mullen. Florida might be favored in every non-Georgia game the rest of the season. At LSU is borderline. We'll kind of wait and see how that plays out. If LSU loses at Kentucky this weekend, then who knows? Florida could be favored in Death Valley. But other than that, the schedule really lightens up for Florida. And it's actually not crazy. I know we criticized Florida a lot over the weekend after losing to Kentucky, but it's not totally out of the realm of possibility that Florida goes 9-3. and three. And it's still sitting there like, hey, yeah, all right, you know, this, this year could have been a whole lot worse. And if that happens, nobody's 
pro nobody's really going to be talking about Dan Mullen and whether or not paying him a $12 million buyout would make any sense. Remember, that buyout number did not change with a three-year extension, even though he got a $1.5 million bump in annual pay. And also remember, more Power 5 head coaches have eight-figure buyouts than not. But that's not something that should be on the minds of Florida fans on Saturday against Vandy. And really, that conversation doesn't have to get interesting unless we're talking about some some way in which Florida is four and four going into Georgia. I don't think that happens. Mm -hmm. I think the Gators roll. I think they covered this weekend against the doors. Will, you're not worried about a Dan Mullen, um, a Dan Mullen hang, it's not a hangover if it's coming off of a loss, but what's the right way to phrase that? Dan Mullen continuing some of that bad juju from his just interesting post-game reaction to Kentucky. You're not worried about that, are you? Well, listen, you can't lose if you have more yards than the other team. So to me, it's not even Great a loss. Point. Yeah, that's Great facts. Point. I mean, mentally, that probably wasn't a loss to him. So do they really have a post-loss bump? That's the question, folks. Uh, no, I mean... Florida yeah. hasn't lost yet then. Because they, they, they outgained Alabama too, right? So is Florida undefeated? Listen, people are some people are asking. Uh, are they the best team in the East? Uh, anyway, so point being, yeah, no, I think... I mean, I hate to say this again, given how terrible LSU is, but it's like, yeah, that's kind of the kind of the dead moan brand. And that's why the Kentucky loss was so shocking, because it's like, yeah, you got like two big games a year. You're going to lose them every year. So it's like, yeah, I mean, you're right. Like, they're going to stay ranked probably for the rest of the year um, and have beaten like, I don't know, uh, depends. Well, yeah, they already lost to Kentucky. I, I mean, how many ranked teams do you see on that's here other than Georgia? Uh, so... Because they're really not going to get an opportunity for like a, a real true quality win. They're probably the rest of the way. And maybe it's a little bit reminiscent of 2018, where for a while, Florida's best win was on the road at Mississippi State, a Mississippi State team that didn't reach expectations with my guy Joe Moorhead. But that was like that, that was the, the win that kind of kept them in the 25 for a little bit and kept them in the top 25, I believe, even after they had that stunning home loss to Mizzou coming off at the cocktail party. This year could kind of feel a little bit hollow in that regard. We talk about this all the time. Not every eight and four season or nine and three season is created equally. Like if Arkansas gets to nine and three, we'll have a much different conversation because it's like, all right, you beat Texas at home. You finally got over the A&M, the, the losing streak against A&M. So that's a, that's a good point and something that maybe won't change a lot of opinions of Florida fans who are now down on Dan Mullen. Let me ask you this. This is a totally like spur of the moment question. I apologize if you, apologize if you don't know the answer to this off the top of your head. Um, as far as bowl tie-ins go, right? So if Florida finishes second in the East and you're looking at the West and you got, you know, Ole Miss, Arkansas, A&M, like we were just talking about, are they automatically slated kind of above the third and fourth place teams in the West? It doesn't break down by division with the uh with the bowl selection process okay it just breaks down i it breaks down in order of of the sec and kind of uh, once the new year six bowls are are figured out then i i believe if i'm not mistaken the top ranked non-new year six bowl team automatically goes to the citrus bowl mm -hmm. i think so uh, i could be i could be wrong on that those times have changed a little bit too i could be wrong on that but it, it all basically depends on the New Year's Six. Basically, and that doesn't the New like, guarantee, slotted, like them being second doesn't mean anything is mainly my question. So yeah, correct, I mean, correct. they could very, but based on the schedule, like we just talked about in the West, those teams are gonna beat each other up. So they could find a way to just finesse their way into a very nice bowl game and like look in the season, like beat Virginia or whoever again and be like, you know what? Maybe 2021, not so bad. Yeah, very unpopular thing to say right now is, I think Florida still could go to a New Year's Six Bowl. <laughs> like that's oh, yeah. not, 
That's not out of the realm of possibility. It really depends on how it plays out for the likes of Arkansas, Kentucky, and Ole Miss. Those are the three ones. And maybe, mm -hmm. I mean, I wouldn't expect Kentucky to lose out on a potential tiebreaker with Florida again like it did in 2018. Even though, you know, Florida, maybe you can make the case that that it did improve down the stretch. I, I don't really know. Those those tie-ins were a little bit different, I think, with the because it was the college football playoff rankings that had Florida ahead of Kentucky, who suffered the embarrassing loss against Tennessee that really hurt them. Um, but anyways, yeah, Florida rolls this weekend. Good question, though. I like that. Good, good, good thing to kind of keep in mind moving forward with this. Mm -hmm. Let's get to another East showdown. South Carolina on the road, Tennessee. Tennessee is a 10.5-point favorite. The over-under I have in this one three mentions of it being a battle of year one coaches. I'll say this, I set the bar pretty low for both Shane Beamer and Josh Heupel coming into this year. I would say so far Beamer has met those expectations. We know that this team has a pretty solid defense. They've been significantly better on special teams, hashtag Beamer ball, and on offense, they're a complete and total mess. Mm -hmm. I would say Heupel met those expectations, given what we thought of Tennessee with some of the potential sanctions that they'd be facing, and who knows, we'll wait and kind of see. Given the mass exodus they had with the transfer portal, I thought he'd be a little bit wishy-washy with the quarterback situation that has played out. I thought his teams would struggle against above averages, above average offenses, that has sort of played out, but that we would at least kind of see those flashes of what it could be. So far, that's pretty much true. So why do I bring that up? Because the winner of this game is going to have their fan base feeling really, really good about their first year head coach. On the Tennessee side, mm -hmm. there are real shades of an offensive identity with Hendon Hooker as the starter and Tyon Evans as the stud tailback. I've got some Hendon Hooker stats that, if you haven't watched him play yet, the Virginia Tech transfer, this is gonna surprise you. Besides just the fact that he's two and one as a starter, Tennessee's averaged 44 points and 508 yards of offense in the games that he has been that guy. Yep. Hooker is also right now number five in FBS and quarterback rating. Dude has better quarterback rating than Matt Corral. All right, like, I give Matt Corral praise, praise at pretty much every turn, but that's saying something. He's number three in the SEC with 9.4 yards per attempt, so the efficiency has been good even if the downfield accuracy isn't quite at the level that you would like. He's also tied for fourth in the SEC in touchdown passes with 10, but he is averaging one touchdown pass per 8.9 pass attempts. Just a little perspective on that. Bryce Young, Heisman favorite, you might've heard of him. He's averaging a touchdown pass once every 8.7 pass attempts. Okay. Pretty good. One last stat for you. Among power five quarterbacks, Hendon Hooker is number 10 in rushing. Despite the fact that he really hasn't been the every game starter so far. The accuracy's got to improve, but he is absolutely capable of being that guy in Josh Heupel's offense. Kind of nice to see Josh Heupel finally declare him QB1 as well. <laughs> I don't know what more you needed to see for that to finally happen. We talked about that last week. Yeah. Why, why has he been so, so indecisive about this one? We know who the better quarterback is. It's not really that close. We also know South Carolina's defense is much better than Mizzou's. So you'll need to see a little bit more of that balance, I think, from Tennessee. South Carolina is going to try and get Luke Doty going a bit more with his legs. He said that he's finally 
feeling like his ankle is back to where it needs to be. And they need it badly because the ground game has been a train wreck. The offensive line has been dreadful. Kevin Harris is ranked number 32 in the SEC in rushing. And he's averaging 3.2 yards per carry. You guys he's remember when Connor was a Kevin Harris hater and everybody was giving ah. him flack for that? Look at, look. Look at him now. <laughs> I, I'm not going to do a victory lap on that because... <laughs> I'm just saying that the offensive line has, has been bad. It yeah. has been. Every South Carolina fan will tell you that. But he's not necessarily good enough to overcome an offensive line that bad. Not many running backs in all of college football are. But that's that is one true. of the things I said. Yeah. Like, look, yeah, that's one of the things I said coming into the year. Why I had a little bit of that concern about Kevin Harris is that he does kind of depend on getting some of those big running lanes. And numbers really showed you that with some of the yards after first contact and, and all of that and the way that it broke down last year. Mm-hmm. So... That is bad news, though, against a Tennessee run defense that really only had one bad week, and it was against Florida's prolific rushing attack, which even after suffering that second loss to Kentucky, Florida still has the number one non-service academy ground game in the country. So respect for Tennessee's <laughs> always, we always do. Give me the balls to win and cover late. Close game that Tennessee maybe looks wishy-washy at times, not quite consistent in offense the way that you were hoping after the Mizzou game. But I think Tennessee still comes away with a win and a cover 31 to 17 final. Am I crazy? No, yeah. I mean, I think like as we're thinking about it here, it's almost like if you took the Florida game out of there, like, I mean, the Pitt game is kind of whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's just one of those teams that jumps up and bites Kenny you. Pickett. Kenny Pickett, the pick quarterback, has been ridiculously good all year as well. Like he, he that that is that is looking like a, a better loss than what we originally expected to in defense of Tennessee. Yeah, listen, I've always said there are two teams I will never fall through losing to other than like great teams. It's uh, Auburn and Pitt, and boy, am I feeling that this week. Uh, anyway, so point being, point being uh, yeah, no, I, I think that yeah, I mean, you're you're. I hate to be this guy, but it just seems like they started the wrong quarterback, and he was hurt. Uh, you know, you can't really always blame Hypo, but like you said, it seems like he's figured it out. And I hate to do this thing. I'm starting to believe in Tennessee a little smidgen. You know, like it's like, okay, like it seems like they have a guy who's not going to airmail every throw. So that's, you know, good. Uh, especially if, you know, we were watching that um, Tennessee Mizzou game and it was like, these guys are on, these guys are at a different speed. Obviously, Mizzou's defense isn't anything special. I understand that. But their run game has been really good. Their run defense has been really good. Like I said, they have elements of their team that are actually pretty solid in a way that I, even I like, wasn't really hopeful about. Joe Milton is the guy in basketball. When you're playing, when you're playing high school basketball, college just kind of goes out the window. Mm-hmm. But when you're a suburban basketball team and you are up against a team that just has athletes galore. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. Like there was this time in high school, I, I promise this is gonna make sense. Mm-hmm. There's this time in high school where we played at St. Joe's. St. Joe's, as many people will know from Hoop Dreams, right? Oh, it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's St. Joe's. Um, they had Evan Turner on that high school team who was playing on varsity. I was not on varsity, I was on the sophomore team. I might have told this story on the pod before, but if I haven't, in pregame, sophomore, sophomore year, they had all these guys dunking in pregame who were not on the varsity team or anything like that. And we just looked at them like, oh my God, this is terrifying. They got teed up. I shot four free throws before the game started because you're not allowed to dunk in the pregame. Mm-hmm. Made three of them, sick brag. Um, why do I bring that up? Joe Milton is the guy where if you want to intimidate someone, just let him take all the reps with the first teamers in pregame 
and let him throw 70, 80 yard bombs. And even though he's not going to be QB one, let him be that intimidating guy for you because that's really the only place that he's going to make an impact moving forward if Hendon Hooker is the guy. But he would absolutely intimidate me if I watched him throw like 80-yard passes in a pregame warm-up. And I know you only get half the field, but whatever. They can figure some way out to do that. If they can punt, they can have him throw an 80-yard pass. So um, that that is the role that Joe Milton needs to play. It's like pregame enforcer. I'll, I'll do you one better on that basketball example. So I went to Hoover High School, obviously, and we had a game we played against Bo Scarborough when he was at Tuscaloosa County. Mm-hmm. And he was like, solid. I'm talking about basketball. And, and it was, he was solid. He was obviously a two-sport athlete. He had a solid game. But there was a moment where he just took off from like the free throw line and like windmill dunked over, like on a guy. And it was like, yeah, you're probably going somewhere. <laughs> yeah, right? And, and, the, and the funny thing too is like sometimes you'll see those guys in, in the pregame warmups who will do that and then you actually see them on the floor and you're like, oh, you're actually like not that good. But I'm for a solid quarter there, I'm super intimidated and I'm just ready for you to dunk on me. Exactly. <laughs> All right, North Texas and Mizzou. Mizzou is a 19 and a half point favorite. The over-under I have for this one, 207 North Texas rushing yards. That's what the mean green are averaging. By the way, I always want to call them the big green. Great movie. One of those mid 90s Disney sports movies that you always see on Disney Plus right there. And I always want to watch it, but Lauren said that she saw it too many times growing up at her babysitter's house and she basically never wants to watch it again. Kind of like me with Fritos. Had them too many times as a kid, never want to eat another one. Anyway, Eli Drinkwitz pulled a Brian Harson. And this happened after we recorded on Sunday. Otherwise, we would have brought it up. Yeah, Drinkwitz fired an assistant a month into the season. Hey, the analytics teams are 1-0 and after firing the receivers coach that week. That is a great point. <laughs> Maybe that'll be the case for Mizzou. Eli Drinkwitz fired Jethro Franklin, defensive line coach. The difference between that and what Brian Harson did is that everyone with eyeballs on a pulse can see that Mizzou's run defense is the Achilles heel as opposed to just firing a receivers coach when your team can't block anyone. That's neither here nor there. If this continues, Drinkwitz might just fire a defensive assistant like once, like after every single game until he gets to Steve Wilkes at the end of the season. He'll basically be like the Joker. Until Batman shows his face, he's going to kill one person. Kill one person. <laughs> okay. I'm not pro or that. I want everybody you know what I'm saying. This, this staff, bless their hearts, I'm sure they're doing their best, but hey, that's a way to get guys motivated. I don't think Mizzou fans would hate it, given the way that things have started off against Power 5 competition. Here's your stat of the day. Not really that crazy, and I'm sure there there might be a crazier one out there if Mizzou fans really want to dig into this. Mizzou is ranked dead last in FBS and run defense, which is why we are talking about this so much. Allowing 30, or not 30, they wish, 307 yards per game on the ground. Georgia has allowed 339 rushing yards in five games this season. Against really good teams, sorry. And facing actual competition too, let let the record show. And Mizzou, on the other hand, um, Kentucky, all right. Solid run game, game. we we love C-Rod here. Um, You faced Boston College, you faced Central Michigan, you have faced this past weekend, of course, was ugly against Tennessee. Uh, you can't predict Mizzou is going to cover a football game until they figure out how to stop the run. You just can't. Mm-hmm. I think they win, but it's a little bit reminiscent of that Central Michigan Central Michigan game where it's just kind of close and you don't ever really feel that good if you're a Mizzou fan. So I don't think Mizzou covers 
a nearly three touchdown spread at home against the mean green, not the big green. I'm actually furious that Mizzou doesn't play LSU this year. Could you imagine how hilarious that game would be? Where like the defensive line is just like, go ahead, buddy. And the, and the offensive line is like, no, no, I insist. And the running back just standing there. <laughs> it's like, what do I do? That would be ugly. We don't need to see that. That would set SEC football back. It wouldn't even set SEC football back because 100 years ago, you knew how to run the football. That's so actually I don't even 200 know what years ago. Yeah. Yeah, maybe 200 years before they even figured out what football was. That's what that game would be. You're right. We are missing out on a golden opportunity. Great, great matchup. Deep South Souls rivalry. Number two, Georgia. 15 and a half point favorite against number 18, Auburn. The over-under I have. Three Bo Nicks turn the corner references. Doesn't have to be those words specifically, but you'll know it when you hear it. Look, if he has turned the corner, we're going to find out in this game. Because if you can do it against Georgia, you can do it against anyone. We have, at least I think we have, the rematch that everyone has been waiting for. Bo Nix against Stetson Bennett IV. Sounds like JT Daniels is still going to be out with that lat injury. Sooner or later, Georgia might run into a team who can actually get stops. And it won't just be Stetson Bennett either throwing to wide open receivers or handing the ball off every single time. Not sure that happens this week, though. Mm -hmm. Even though Stetson apparently has a significant cut on his knee, said it's not bothering him, he'll be good. Don't know why a knee laceration comes up if it's not bothering him. Take that for what it is. This is a trenches football game. Cliche, but true. I still think Georgia has that advantage in spades. Maybe I'm brainwashed from seeing Auburn get dominated in the trenches two weeks ago against Georgia State, and I'm not convinced that their line on either side of the ball was particularly dominant against LSU because what's that really saying if you're beating LSU in the trenches? Thanks. Georgia's not missing in space like that. They're just not. Georgia's not going to get six chances to tackle Bo Nix and then watch him make one of the best college football plays you've seen in recent memory. Just not going to happen. N'Kobe Dean, Devontae Wyatt, they aren't guys who get embarrassed when they break down for a hit on a quarterback. You, th that film doesn't exist. That's the difference in this one. Mm -hmm. Auburn would love to not rely on Bo Nix. As weird as it is to say, after how amazing he played against LSU, and it truly was amazing, it's fair to say that this is also the best one-two punch at tailback that Georgia has seen with Tank and Hunter. Great name for a sitcom that would be. But I can't see Hunter getting the edge in this one. And I don't see him getting those chunk plays against Georgia with how disciplined they are with tackling, of course. Maybe Tank has a few moments where he looks like he's wrapped up uh, maybe a yard or two behind the line of scrimmage and he finds a way to gain two. But that's still going to put Bo Nix in some of these tough spots on third and long. We're still talking about a Georgia defense that has allowed one, count it, one touchdown through the first five games of the season. That probably is going to matter in a game like this. And, and I know, look, the competition hasn't really been that great yet. They're, Georgia's probably not going to face a top 20 offense until the ICC championship. But if you're doubting them, like a certain Danny Cannell, shout out to Danny. Overdue to have him back on the pod. But he did, of course, throw that stat out there. This is anti-SEC agenda continues. Whatever. Georgia allows 10 points in this one. Auburn scores an offensive touchdown. That's a bold prediction. We're going to get to bold and brash a little bit later, but that's a bold prediction for now. Mm -hmm. Demetrius Robertson, revenge game. He gets a touchdown for Auburn in this one. But Georgia wins the football game and covers 28-10. to 10. Will, how do you see this playing out? Yeah, you led with uh, Bo Nix turning the corner, and I would argue that Bo Nix has turned too many corners. I think he's like a football-playing hexagon. 
he'll turn left, and then he'll turn right, and then he'll turn left. <laughs> and, and that's the great thing about him. He's so good for SEC football. Like we talked about, it's like, as a person who, <laughs> I mean, Bo, Bo Nix has a winning record against my team, <laughs> weirdly enough. Um, I don't think, well, first off, on, on that tip, he hasn't beaten Auburn yet, has he? Or sorry, uh, he hasn't beaten Georgia, I mean. Correct. He had the fourth quarter comeback two years ago in that game at home in which they were down 21 to nothing and then gets two touchdowns and it's like, oh, Auburn has a chance to win this game. If Bonix had actually played well in the first three quarters or even just played average, they would have had a chance, but that that was not the case. And then last year, oh gosh, it was ugly. Last year, that game at Georgia, he did not have a chance. Bad offensive line, bad... Bad everything for, for Auburn in that one. So, no, that is that is a team that he has not beat yet. Yeah, so I, I think that trend continues. I mean, like you said, I, I will forever have laser in my mind. I, I know we talked about this, but whenever K.J. Daniels do that, uh, or sorry, uh, yeah, whatever. J.T. Daniels, yeah. No, K.J. Jefferson. Sorry. Jefferson, there we K- go. K.J. Jefferson, whenever he threw that swing pass <laughs> uh, against Georgia and the whole defense just swarmed on him like bugs, yeah. I just, you can't, like, you can't stop it. And there's no, they're not gonna lose discipline. That's the thing about Georgia. They're a very disciplined defense. They're a defense that stays in their lane, that they trust each other, which is what was missing from Georgia last year, by the way. Georgia had so much going on last year that they were kind of playing individual football on defense. This is a classic Kirby Smart defense for Georgia. And that's one of the scariest things available in college football. So those kinds of plays don't really happen against a team like this. And you look at Bonex's like marquee wins. I mean, it's really against that one Alabama defense that had the same issue. They, had, they, were, they were depleted by injury. They weren't on the same page. And so, yeah, I mean, when he plays against the defense that makes him play quarterback and not like rugby, uh, it's usually pretty bad. And I would I would say that, you know, Georgia continues their role as, you know, either the best or second best team in the SEC uh, in this one. And I mean, the fact that Auburn actually went up in rank last week is hilarious. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's another rank win for their thing that people can doubt. Uh, but that's what it's going to be. I'm laughing because I pictured Bo Nix scrambling to his right and punting the football instead of throwing it on third down. <laughs> well, now I'm imagining Bo Nix doing that nonsense against LSU, but then boom, Jordan Davis. 360-pound <laughs> like, man who does not miss. I, I have a tough time seeing Bo Nix having the same sort of success against his Georgia defense. And look, uh, on the offensive side for Georgia, their ground game is, is really figuring things out. And it's because they're actually willing to stretch the field now. And they're hopefully going to be getting the receivers back healthy as well. Uh, Dominique Blaylock and uh, I think it's Arian Smith is coming back. Marcus Roseby, Jack Saint are all possible returnees for this game. So you just kind of never know. Will, what's up? Humpst. What was that last name? Marcus, Marcus Roseby, Jack Saint. We haven't paid Marcus Roseby, Jack Saint. We haven't paid yeah, he- attention to that name. I'm sorry. <laughs> So he got he got hurt in that Florida game last year. He took a really really big hit in that game. I think it was going into I think it was going into the end zone in the cocktail party, and he's been kind of off and on to be able to come back. But has had a couple of moments this year. But just need to keep that guy healthy. Georgia yeah. just needs to be able to keep all of its receivers healthy. They're a little bit thin right now in that department, despite the fact that they're getting these big time contributions from Lad. Yeah, that's right, your favorite Lad. What a Lad. What a lad. In all. <laughs> and, uh, and then we're, we're going to continue to sing the praises of Brock Bowers, of course. But they need to keep those guys healthy. And in a game like this, where you're on the road, and you need some of those guys that you can just trust on third down to be able to move the, to be able to move the chains, I think that, that we're going to see a little bit more of that where you kind of question, all right, 
This would be really good to have JT Daniels. I don't think Georgia takes off offensively in this game, but I think they turn to the ground game as they often can, and that's the fuel that they need to be able to win on the road and get another top 25 win, which we talked all year about Georgia's schedule and how it's going to really kind of open up after Clemson. And instead, you get two ranked opponents in a row, which nobody was saying, was predicting Arkansas was going to be as good of a win as it is. So we'll mm-hmm. kind of wait and see how that plays out. But still, I think Georgia picks up a nice win this weekend. It's, it's crazy to think, too. So going into the season where we were talking about, like, oh, like they're going to struggle against Clemson. Like, their receivers aren't healthy. Their quarterback isn't healthy. They have all these issues with them missing in camp and, like, not having chemistry. And it's like, they're just beating teams to sleep. <laughs> like, it's just like we said. Like, I know. I understand. It's Georgia. We all kind of predicted, like, ah, oh, they're going to struggle and lose to Clemson. And then they're going to figure it out later in the season. It's shocking that they've played this well without all those receivers with JT Daniels missing time with all those different stuff so I'm I'm so excited about Georgia this year I've I've been bamboozled again I'm just pumped about it and set a picnic that defense that's what they are and mm-hmm. there you we'll, go we'll see we'll see a lot of that yeah I was I was searching for the reference I was like oh I know what he's trying to say there but I couldn't think of exactly what it was that is what they are LSU Kentucky number 16 Kentucky Three and a half point favorite game that I will be at. The over under that I have for this one. One replay of the Bluegrass Miracle. One of the most stunning plays in college football history. Maybe, you know what? Let's just say one of the most stunning plays in football history. In anyway. football history, yeah. Pee Wee, high school, NAIA, I don't care, NFL. 11 seconds left, up 30 to 27, and you need 91 yards. 91 yards. People forget about the the 17, what was it, like a 17-yard gain or a 19-yard gain on the play before that, too. They were starting off at like their own like nine-yard line because you couldn't do the fair catch thing back in that day. So they just had their, their kick returner running out of bounds right? so as to not waste any time. And they go, they go that far. And then, of course, the 74 yards, one tip, one total defensive collapse. I always wince whenever I see the Guy Morris Gatorade bath. It's the ultimate cold take. I mean, it is literally a cold take. Shout out to Jared Lorenzen, though, um, who was pouring the Gatorade on Guy Morris in that. I, I remember seeing highlights of that as a 12-year-old and being stunned. Mm-hmm. Like, that was, that's one of those moments where you just think, oh, this, is, this was a glitch in the video game. This shouldn't have happened. And it actually did. And the crazy thing is that Kentucky fans had already stormed the field, and they didn't realize that LSU had just won in that way. Just an unbelievable play. Go back and YouTube that one if, if you haven't already, getting ready for this game. Um, I, I say that because LSU fans, y'all aren't going to like the rest of what I've got to say about this game. You're just not. Kentucky's the better football team in the year 2021. Both have flaws. And I do worry a little bit about Kentucky not having Josh Ali in this one. Mm-hmm. Wandale is the only other Kentucky player with more than five catches this year. That's it. I mean, it has really been kind of the Wandale show in the passing game. Wandale and Josh Lee have been it. I know they want Isaiah Epps to really get going. They're also going to be without Marquand McCall, the, the nose tackle for, uh, for Kentucky. He's going to be out for, I think, like six weeks or something like that. If there's ever a game, though, that you can survive without a nose tackle, it's facing the LSU rushing attack. Just going to throw that out there. Yes. Only two FBS rushing attacks are worse than LSU in terms of yards per game. And that is Mississippi State, who only averages 19 rush attempts per game. 
not really a thing that they're interested in. Right. And Bowling Green, who, as you might recall, Bowling Green was so thin on the offensive line that they started a, a true freshman walk-on center in that season opener against Tennessee. Buddy, would so I take that great. right now? <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. Kentucky, on the other hand, has a ground game. Not like a top five ground game, but a very good ground game. Chris Rodriguez, you might have heard of him. Having an extraordinary year for Kentucky. Didn't fumble last week against Florida. Looks like he really prioritized the ball security with the way that he was holding on to the football. Encouraging to see that. He's got 154 more rushing yards than anybody else in the SEC right now. He's actually on pace to break the school's single season rushing record if he can get over 1,600 yards, which not a given that he takes off against the LSU run defense. It's been okay since that UCLA game. They're only allowing 3.6 yards per carry, which if you had told me that they would be at that point five games into the year after what we saw against UCLA, I would say not likely, but they haven't been terrible there. They haven't been getting gashed as much as it might feel like sometimes. Will, do you think the LSU run defense is at least not a complete and total weakness, or are you still like, no, Kentucky's going to run all over them? I mean, man, it's shocking how good of a game they had against Tank Bigsby. That's the crazy thing. Like, Hunter had a big play in the game, but, like, I was watching that game, and, like, when I saw his numbers, I was like, oh, we're going to win this one. Like, it was like, yeah, this is kind of what they got. And so, yeah, it's 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 funny uh, that that was able to happen. But, yeah, man, I mean, we talked about this a little bit off air. It's like, I don't want to do the doom and gloom LSU is bad thing. I mean, you guys know, obviously, I'm from Louisiana. I'm not just picking on them for no reason. I'm a big dude, that's why I always make thick guy references. I'm very self-deprecating in that way. So I was telling Connor, you know, I'm gonna have lots of opportunity to dunk on LSU and talk about how bad they are. Uh, hopefully, you know, that'll be a little bit later in the season. I do think a big one, and you kind of touched on this, is gonna be the turnover battle. Uh, we saw whenever Kentucky was not playing well, that was their Achilles heel. And lo and behold, they played Florida and played closer to mistake-free football where Florida shot themselves in the foot and you see what happened. You know, Mark Snoops has been playing the same game of football, as we say, for like three years, <laughs> with very varying degrees of success. You know, it's like a 17-10 game, 21-13 game, like all these really close games. They play to their level of competition. We literally said that against Florida. We said that against South Carolina. That's just what they do. So hopefully this game is fun. I don't I hope, <laughs> I hope Kentucky doesn't have the horses to just blow an inferior team off the field because that's what the LSU is right now. Um, yeah, I, I do think an interesting matchup is going to be, um, you know, they haven't done the Bo Pelini thing of like man-to-man coverage, but Wandale versus Ricks feels like it's going to be pretty fun, especially given how... Hmm? So I'll push back on that. Okay. I was gl- I'm glad you bring that up. It, not, not to interrupt, yeah. your boy Flot is going to be all over Wandale because... Flott has played slot corner 79% of his snaps this year. Okay. Wandell lined up in the slot 70% of his snaps. I think we might actually see Flott shadow him, given how, how dominant he has been. I think he's like number four in terms of highest grade corners on PFF. But he's been extraordinary. And I kind of think that's the way that you slow down Kentucky because they're not really going to be able to force feed him targets mm-hmm. if Flot's all over, if Flot's shadowing. They're going to try and, I bet Liam Cohen is going to try and get him multiple end arounds, jet sweeps, stuff like that to try and get him free because that that is a great individual matchup. Like one of the better individual matchups all year probably in the SEC. So I, I actually don't think that will, because I, I think they want to be able to play Ricks on the outside. Although with Josh Ali out, maybe you feel like you're wasting Ricks by doing that, but LSU has some options for how they could potentially cover Wanda. 
You know, I'm really glad you interrupted me to say that because mentally I actually kind of knew that about Flop, but I didn't want to just come in here and be like, you know, Flop versus Wandale is a pretty good matchup. I'm glad that you came it in is. here unbiased with some stats because like Flop's a guy I've been hyping up since the AM game last year and nobody wants to hear it because LSU's defense has been terrible, but he's been definitely a bright True. spot. And I'm really excited about that matchup. You're absolutely right. I I, I think that Ricks is going to be chilling like he is what to do. And, and I, I think that this is going to be, hopefully should be a very fit. Well, hopefully for Kentucky to be a very physical game. Uh, right. That's the style they like to play. But I mean, and I'll give one more one more thing, and then we can get out of here. But the um, one loss that I think is underappreciated um, is Andre Anthony for LSU. He was such a leader yes. in that locker room. He was one of the guys ripping that team out of mediocrity after the UCLA game, and he was basically super making, senior. Yeah, yeah, making calls, leading. You know, he's kind of like a hybrid type of guy. So he had communication with the line and the linebackers. Um, yeah, and I think that without him, that defense has no teeth. He's a guy that totally wouldn't have let Bo Nix get away with what he got away with last week. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think that overall it's going to be a very exciting game. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. Kentucky wants to make this a, a ground-and-pound type of game. Yep. And if this is the versatility that we're going to see from the offense, this would be a good time to, to control time possession, to not necessarily turn the football over. Kentucky is sitting there at 5-0, and despite the fact that it is the second-worst team in FBS in turnover margin. That's incredible. <laughs> that never happens. That's not supposed to happen. The game plan, I think, on offense, run, run, play action to Wandale. That, that's going to be the, the way that they're going to try and get him. You, you try and get flawed, or, or, or if it is Ricks on him, whoever is covering him, to just peek in the backfield that, that split second, because that's all Wandale needs. And mm -hmm. if you get him in press coverage, that's the chance that Will Levis is going to take. I don't think we're going to see him try and stretch the field as much as what would some would expect. And I think that Kentucky is a little bit more content to say, you know what? We want our ground game to be able to take over. We want to have a lot of C-Rod. We want to have a lot of Kavassier smoke in this one. And then the occasional end around. That's, that's the blueprint, I think, for trying to keep this LSU offense out of rhythm, keep Max Johnson off the field as much as possible. I am so fired up for this atmosphere. It's my first time at Kroger Field for a game. I've been there, but not for an actual game. Mm -hmm. It looked incredible last week against Florida. It really did. And oh, yeah. it might not have the same exact juice because of how much Florida meant to beating those fans, but I think it'll be outstanding. I don't think it's a blowout, but I think Kentucky wins and covers. I think they win 21 to 14, which would be the first 6-0 start since 1950 when a certain Bear Bryant was doing his thing as an up-and-coming 37-year-old head coach. How about that? Jeez. 1950. Gosh, Mark Stoops would be riding high if he, if he could pull out wins against Florida and LSU in consecutive weeks. Mm -hmm. That Mark Stoops raise, boy, it's coming. Oh, it's coming. It's yeah. coming. <laughs> you know it. He's All putting right. the money in the bank, some would say. Will, that's why you're the real MVP of this. <laughs> Put your money in this bank. He's just gonna walk. He's just gonna walk into Mitch Barnhart's office, and he's gonna say those exact words. Would expect nothing less. <laughs> Number one, Alabama, seventeen and a half point favorite on the road, Texas A&M. The over/under I have one and a half references. Yeah, don't laugh at that spread, Will. I'm don't sorry. laugh at that spread. Come on, man. Come on. We talked about them all offseason and hyped them up. <sighs> it's a seventeen and a half point spread. Come on, that's funny. This this is a little bit of a tail between the legs matchup for me because of what I said in the offseason about how A&M was finally going to get over the hump and beat Alabama. And again, as I've already alluded to, I'm not picking A&M to win this football game. But here's why. Bold. And the over-under um, I have, which I, 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 brought, I ran right past, is one and a half references to Jimbo Fisher saying he was going to beat Saban's ass while he was at Alabama. 
that faded in a hurry. Not seeing a whole lot of that. Um, and it bums me out in a couple ways that this game isn't going to have that sort of feel where you feel like that's a real possibility. Someone reached out and said that I had Bama fatigue, which I'll admit, like, look, I don't have a dog in this fight. I, I selfishly root for my own entertainment. I like people, storylines are fun too. Is it more entertaining to watch Alabama find itself in a 60 minute game in a hostile atmosphere? Objectively speaking, absolutely. There is no doubt about it. And this is going to be a great atmosphere. And I meant to shout out AM fans last week and Tom Hart, our friend, was able to do that on social media because I know we sometimes have our fun with the Aggies because of the little quirks, you know, and they got the rings, they got the uniforms and all that stuff. But that crowd did everything in its power to try and will a victory last weekend. I mean, everything. They were cheering like crazy to try and get those pre-snap penalties, and sometimes it worked. Seeing how Tom kind of brought it up afterwards, it's almost like A&M fans knew, all right, 12, the 12th man stuff, say what you want about it, it's cliche, whatever, but it was almost like A&M fans realized, we're gonna have to find a unique way to beat Mississippi State because this offense ain't it, and it nearly worked. It almost did. Against Bama, it's not working. Yeah, the Zach man is cool against... until he's playing quarterback. I've got some bad Zach Calzada stats, and I don't want to depress AM fans too much because they're already going to be very fearful going into a matchup against an Alabama defense that looked like he figured a lot of things out against the Heisman Trophy favorite, Matt Corral. Anderson Mathis, they might swallow that poor kid whole. And I had some AM fans who are pushing back, who pushed back a couple weeks ago when I said after the New Mexico game that I was still worried about him because he just doesn't have that mental clock. These numbers confirm everything that you have, that you have seen from Zach Calzada so far. Among SEC quarterbacks, qualified SEC quarterbacks, he ranks 13 out of 14 in quarterback ranking, in quarterback rating, my bad, not quarterback ranking, but also probably that too. Who is last? He's number 13. I'm sorry. Ken Seals. We don't need any more anti-Ken Seals takes on this pod. Pour one out for Ken Seals. Guy, guys, I would argue Zach Calzada's got more help than Ken Seals, though. Yeah, some would say. Everyone should say, I would hope. Zach Calzada, number 13 out of 14 in yards per attempt. He is number 11 out of 14 in TD passes. He is dead last, 14 out of 14 in completion percentage. And he has taken as many sacks as any quarterback in the SEC. Not great. Not great. This game should have been the opportunity for Jimbo to take that next step. And instead, it's going to be an all too clear reminder that 2021 is a wasted opportunity in College Station. I think AM's defense comes out firing in this one. Leal, PV, O'Neill, Antonio Johnson, they play their tails off in this. Maybe they get a few stops to start off the game and you're like, hey, you know, you never know. But then we have something like a Zach Calzada pick six that gets Bama going. Jordan Battle has been on the brink of one. I'm gonna call my shot on that. I'm gonna think I'm gonna say that that happens. He has been around the football constantly. I think that guy makes a big time play. And then Bryce Young gets going a little bit. Harks back to that Florida experience with some of the counts and not having some of those pre-snap miscommunication issues. Brian Robinson has a better day running against that defense than what he did a couple weeks ago on the road at Florida. Coming off of his career day, he continues some of that ground and pound style that we saw against Ole Miss because that's the best way to attack this A&M defense. In case there was any doubt though, I am not sticking with my preseason pick that AM would win. That would be foolish. And Bama rolls and covers. Ah, we'll go 35 to 10 on this one. That would mark the sixth consecutive season that Alabama started off with a perfect 
half of the regular season. Well, before, before I get your take on this one, I don't want to scare you too much, but I've had a, a little bit of a holy crap, slow down time moment this week. After this weekend, 12 of 14 ICC teams will have already played half of their regular season schedule. And I hate that. Man. That's like Sunday scaries to the max type yeah. stuff. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll say this, man. Like, I have made no bones about this on this podcast. The 2020 season was like my relationship with, L- with, uh, sorry, with SEC football was like hitting a rough patch. Like, I was like, man, I've been in love with this thing my whole life. I watch every weekend. It doesn't feel the same. Everything's a little bit weird. This, this year has been like a full, like the fire is back. Like there are so many things that I grew up watching, you know, LSU, Mississippi State tied, or not tied, seven to three at halftime. You know, you got an aggressive Kirby Smart defense. You have Mike Leach beating an overrated Texas team or team from Texas. You have all these, you have all these things that I grew up watching that make me happy. Uh, Dan Mullen, I'll leave that, leave that there. Uh, but like, you know, numerous things have happened this year that have made me think, you know, maybe last year wasn't this big upheaval. Maybe everything has it changed. Maybe the things I love are still around. And buddy, a Saban disciple being a 17 and a half point <laughs> underdog after we hyped them up all offseason is exactly something that could have happened any year that I was in middle school, high school, whatever. Like, and, and, and on the other end of that, you have Alabama with just the most random assortment of assistants. They have whoever, you know, whoever, I guess Saban obviously has his pick of the litter and I'm not saying like they underhired, but it's like they can win with anybody. We've proven it over and over again. You know, we all, like myself included, you know what I'm saying? And and luckily I just was at a festival for the Florida game because I'm sure I would have said some dumb stuff too about Alabama, but I, like as much as that Florida game was like a moral victory and it was all this, oh, maybe Bama's slow. It's like, you watch that old Miss game and it's like, that's what you're scared of. And if you're an A&M, that's what you're scared of, except you don't have Matt Corral. You have Zach Calzada. And you don't have Lane Kiffin. You have Jimbo Fisher. You don't even have Ole Miss's offensive line either, too. That, that's the other issue. It's like, man, they just, I mean, they lost what, another Matthews. He's going to be out. I think he's out for the year. Their offensive line has just been, oh, it's been patchwork at best. And after last year, all the continuity that they had up front, they're going to get dominated up front. It's going to be terrible. That that right there is, is is a great point. And you know you're going through all those quarterback statistics, and you know whenever you hear a statistic, like my natural inclination is just be the devil's advocate and say, well, why could that be? You know what I'm saying? It's okay, boom. You know, touchdown passes. Well, maybe he didn't start all the games. Okay, what about this? And I kept thinking, yeah, maybe maybe he just didn't start all the games. And then it led the SEC in sacks, and it's like. Oh, so maybe he doesn't have as many snaps per se as like a Corral or like some of these other quarterbacks that have been there all year, but he's still getting hit more than them. And that's mind-blowing because we talked about going into this year that it wasn't even about Haynes King. It was about everything else. It was about this infrastructure, this recruiting, everything that Jimbo had Mm. built. And the offensive line, as I can tell you better than anyone, Connor, is such a clear indication of where you're at as a program. And it's so like, you can't really have a good team with a bad offensive line. And it's so, you know, it's the intricacies of, you know, it's not a glamorous thing. It's not something that you get a big offensive lineman and the fan base like you know reacts. It's something that is the roots of the tree of like a great football team that you can just push a guy five yards. And it's how the New Orleans Saints have done as well as they have, just keep drafting the trenches. And you look at, yeah, like you said, this A&M team, you've gone from something that should have been one of their biggest strengths easily. And now you look at this point in the season, it's like, oof. It's bad. And I, I understand that you lost four or five starters up front. I, I get that, and, and nobody's dismissing that. But at the same time, 
if we're going to hold Jimbo to this standard of uh, he's he's trying to get into the same the same group the same stratosphere as doesn't matter what we lose we're we're still going to find a way and we're just going to be pencil us in for a top seven season on a yearly basis. If right. you want to be at the level that uh, Lincoln Riley or even a Ryan Day still is is kind of considered to be at, despite the fact that they had the Oregon loss. You have to be able to overcome those issues. And Jimbo signed nine offensive linemen rated four stars or better in his four recruiting classes. Oh. So you can't even like you can't even tell me, look, that you just don't have you don't have talent. Jimbo said in the spring that this offensive line had more upside than last year's group long term. Now we'll wait and kind of see if that's gonna play out. So far, no. Doesn't look to be the case. And you can see how drastically it changes your team's potential. And when you don't have the right guy in there at quarterback, yeah, those issues are going to be magnified. But I think it's going to be ugly. I really do. And, you know, for, for the sake of AM fans who are hoping to, to be able to watch their team take the next step to all of a sudden be at like 0-3 in ICC play, oof, buddy, I'll tell you what, that is a tough pill to swallow. That is a really tough pill to swallow. All right, lock of the week. We're now at four and two, Cincinnati. Never a doubt, never a doubt. Bearcats imposed their will at mm-hmm. Notre Dame. Preseason playoff pick very much alive. I thought about a couple of different options here and three games that I really thought long and hard about but I didn't quite pull the trigger on for lock of the week but I'm still gonna bring them up. Temple is plus 29 at Cincinnati. Big emotional win for Cincinnati coming off of, you know, probably the biggest win in program history in the regular season or at least one of them mm-hmm. and temple just beat memphis memphis team that respect big mike mcintyre podcast we are but this is also a pro cincinnati podcast so we don't root against luke fickle's team right thought about going coastal carolina minus 19 and a half against arkansas state but then i saw that game was on thursday night and i know a lot of people listen to this on friday morning or even while they're driving to a game on saturday so i didn't want to get cold take that quickly and you know plus what good does that help you if you're trying to put a game put a bet on a game that's already happened but coastal with friend of the show jamie chadwell they are well on their way to going 12 and 0 and getting to a New Year's Six Bowl. Grayson McCall is having a fantastic year, and we probably need to be talking about him a little bit more nationally. Almost went with Old Reliable, Malik Willis. Liberty, also 19 and a half point favorite, Middle Tennessee. That's almost like a default for me though, and I wanna be able to kind of mix it up, even though um, they had a nice bounce back win following the Syracuse loss, they bounced back against UAB, and mm-hmm. Malik Willis looks ridiculously good. He is so fun to watch. So what am I getting at? Maryland is plus 21 at Ohio State. Terps have a little bit of extra rest after they got smoked against Iowa. That Iowa game was ugly. Iowa's defense, though, is way better than Ohio State's. Talia Tungabailoa, to his little brother, up until last week, I think he looked like the Big Ten's best quarterback. I think in this one, he has himself a day. They just lost one of their stud receivers, so that's going to hurt. And I think that's also baked in with that line. Ohio's defense, Ohio State's defense played well against Rutgers, which, cool, golf clap. Um, Shiano is not an offensive first team. I mean, come on, that's, that's not his bread and butter. But did Ohio State's defense actually turn the corner? Are we going to say that based on wins against uh, the likes of Rutgers and Tulsa? Like, no, I'm not. I'm not going there. I think Maryland plus 21 covers on the road. The longest lock of the week in history. (laughs) I was was like following that. I was like, so the final pick 
is Maryland plus 21. <laughs> Final pick is Maryland plus okay. 21. I like those other games. I like those other games, but if we're going to go with Lock of the Week, I'm going to stick with one because when I try and get a little bit too in love with the board, that's when we get into problems like what happened um, with uh, who was it back in week one. Indiana. I can't remember who it was. Iowa covered. Iowa covered. I should have just stuck with that. I should have just stuck with that. I had one other one that I picked for, for week one that it didn't work out. But anyways, that's beside the point. We're four and two. That's all that matters. Let's go to my interview with Lars Anderson. He's got a new book that was just released. It's about Dabo. So we talked about that a lot. Before you say, hey, I hate Dabo. Why would I want to listen to an interview with a guy who wrote a book about Dabo? A few things. One is that Dabo did not co-write this book. As you'll hear, he didn't even participate in this book. Lars did all of his reporting away from Dabo, so this isn't necessarily some skewed perspective where you're just gonna be reading something in Dabo's words. Also, Lars has been around for a minute and uh, he knows coaches really, really well. So we talked about some non-Dabo things like Saban, Mullen, Beamer, a little Scott Frost. And one last, last thing, we recorded this two weeks ago, which is why in the interview, I'm not like, hey, is Dabo falling off the face of the earth now that he's got a two loss team? Is that something that you think is relevant or is that him back sales of the book or anything like that? So just kind of keep that in mind. Anyway, here is Lars Anderson. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Lars Anderson, longtime college football writer and author of many books, including your most recent one, Dabo's World, The Life and Career of Coach Sweeney and the Rise of Clemson Football, which is on sale October 5th. Lars, I, I know a lot of people listening to this with our audience, they have their own opinions of Dabo and everyone who consumes college football probably has their own opinion of Dabo. What was your opinion of him before doing this book and what is your opinion of him now that you got an up close look at him well as i was writing the book uh you know Dabo became a much more polarizing figure last season with uh different statements he made about covid and, uh, and you know um whether or not a team was sort of ducking clemson and using covid as a response and and what he said about paying players that if that ever happens he'd quit and of course he didn't quit um, so, you know, Dabo has never been afraid to speak his mind, but he's sort of become much more controversial just in the last few years. Um, but, you know, I, I live in Birmingham, Alabama. Dabo grew up just outside of Birmingham in a, in a, in a suburb called Pelham, Alabama. He went to Alabama, University of Alabama. I'm a professor. I'm on faculty in the journalism department at the University of Alabama. And so I really felt that Dabo's story, the most compelling parts of his story, were here, like you know, in my backyard. And so I wanted just to dig in to, to figure out, and this is what I always try to do in, in books and, and extended profiles I've written over the years, is just sort of what it, where his motivations come from, what obstacles has he overcome, what really makes him tick. And if you dig deep into his childhood, his experiences at Alabama, uh, getting fired uh, from Alabama, being out of coaching, going into the commercial real estate business, and just looking like he's never going to have a chance to coach again, uh, it's a remarkable story of perseverance. And no matter what you think of sort of his uh, political opinions or um, how it, he, it runs almost a faith-based program, and he, and he definitely uses religion in recruiting. There's no question about it. And, you know, there have been um, 
there have been several groups that have said that this is a violation of, of sort of church and state since it's a public school. Um, but, you know, nothing's ever come of that. So, yes, he has become a controversial figure, a polarizing figure in, in recent years. But, uh, you know, I want to dig into his childhood. I mean, and frankly, it's because who, who right now would you say is the second best coach in the country? Uh, college football coach and you have to point at Dabo I mean he's he's beaten Nick Saban twice in national championship games no other coach can say that and um, you know when he took over Clemson Clemson was a, a hot mess and he was able to build it and I would argue that he built it just basically through force of personality uh, and uh, just who Dabo is and and it is definitely you know, I also wanted to contrast because I've, I'm so close to the Alabama program. I've written two books basically on Nick Saban. Um, one is called Storm in the Tide, and that was about the tornado that went through Tuscaloosa in 2011 and, and how Coach Saban became um, a community leader as much as a coach and, and how that, that team went on to win two consecutive national championships and what that did for the collective psyche of, of rebuilding the city. Then another book called Chasing the Bear, which was basically a dual biography of, of Saban and Bear Bryant. So I feel like I know the program there. And I also wanted to examine what are the differences between Nick Saban's program and and the Clemson program. And, and really, it boils down to at Alabama, man, it's all preparation for the NFL. And at Clemson, it's a relationship-driven program. It's more about the culture uh, it's more about, um, you know, creating, it's, it, there's a closeness in, a, in, in, in the program that, that doesn't exist at, at Alabama. Uh, there's a reason why there's a huge turnover of coaches at Alabama and at Clemson, there's basically zero turnover. Um, so, and, and it all goes back to the, the leaders of the program, but they're, they've both been immensely successful, yet they're both very different. However, Dabo Sweeney, the biggest influence in his coaching life was Bear Bryant. Uh, and he, when he was growing up here in Pelham, like most young kids, you go to church on Sunday and then Sunday afternoon you watch the Bear Bryant show. And, uh, you know, it was hard to t- discern what was more important, God or Bear Bryant, to <laughs> so many of these young kids. And, and Bear Bryant's ultimate philosophy uh, was coach them hard, hug them harder. And that means you, you just get after the players on the field, but once you're walking off that field, you put your arm around them and you tell them you love them and you tell them that you're there for them and you do anything for them. And so there's a huge Alabama uh, influence on the Clemson program. And there are, there are so many Clemson or so many Alabama ties to Clemson that the Clemson staff, you know, sort of behind the scenes has, has referred to themselves as the Clemson Tide because it, because of the influence of Alabama and, again, the number of people uh, on that staff that have ties to the University of Alabama. Okay, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you about chasing the bear. And I, I think for any college football fan, Saban and and Dabo have become so synonymous with one another over the last six plus years because of this great rivalry and because of obviously their ties to Alabama. But we consume them in such different ways. 
And you could say that's because of how long that Saban's been doing it and because Dabo doesn't have as many rings. But I, I still kind of think if Dabo won five more titles, I don't think his words would carry the same sort of weight as Saban, at least not outside that Clemson community. Is that accurate or do you see Dabo's legacy following a similar trajectory? No, I think that's accurate. Um, you know, Saban has been doing this so much longer than Dabo. He's won national championships at, at multiple schools, and he's won, uh, you know, six national championships, I think, in, what, 12, 13 years, basically national, averaging a national championship every other year. Every player that has uh, played at least three years for Nick Saban has won a national title, uh, gotten a national t- championship ring. Uh, Clemson has a long way to go, and, and, and Dabo does, to, to sort of match that legacy. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Saban has become this sort of, uh, you know, outside of Alabama. I mean, he, I think Nick could do basically anything in, in, in life. Uh, you know, he's really into – his automotive dealerships, uh, you know, his dad ran a gas station and, and he talks about his father constantly. And I, and, and I tell like young reporters who are covering Alabama, uh, whenever Nick brings up his dad, you better listen. Cause it's about to be something very important. His dad died at age 46 and, but Nick is constantly talking about his father and the lessons he imparted and, and he still uses many of the of the phrases that his dad used when he was coaching him, and 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 uh, Nick's whole coaching style really it, it, you can trace it back to his father, who was his sort of his his uh, pee wee league coach, his like Pop Warner coach when Nick played quarterback for him. And um, you know, with, I think with Dabo, his his personality, it, it's more, it, it's almost just more regional. Just like Clemson is a more regional program than Alabama, I don't think Clemson is the national has the national brand that Alabama does. Certainly doesn't have the history that Alabama does. That's why for a while, you know, Dabo kept referring to Clemson as little old Clemson. Oh, just little mm-hmm. old Clemson. And uh, a while that that, that kind of that got, that grew a little thin. You know, that sort of spiel grew a little thin with people. Um, you know, but Clemson is of all the major schools, I think it's in the smallest town, right. Of all like the, the sort of powerhouse, uh, college football programs, it's in the smallest town. Uh, but it, it does, they, they, their PR department's done a great job. Their sports information and they have, I think as, as many Twitter followers almost as, as any other program. And they've done a good job of branding themselves. And then Dabo, you know, he has created this Shangri-La of a complex there because he has been able just to absolutely sort of seduce these big donors and, uh, and, and into giving Alabama money or sorry, into giving Clemson money to build this uh, sort of football complex of his dreams. And, uh, you know, I have this one little story in, in the in the book in Dabo's world where uh, one of the, the, the key donor, the key donors, he had already given some money uh, to build a new locker room. And, and he and his wife were adamant that, you know, they they weren't going to give any more money. And uh, and ultimately, um, Dabo gets on gets on a plane and goes and visits him, uh, I think, on like the the outer banks there in South Carolina and uh, just knocks on the door and. 
and goes and, and sort of uh, and sells his vision of what Clemson can become if they have the right facility. And they uh, uh, end up eating some pizza together, and they're out looking over the Atlantic Ocean. And by the end of the meeting, uh, the, 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 the donor basically said, how much money do you need? And then as he left, as he, as he left, the wife looks to the husband and said, do you think we gave him enough money? <laughs> I mean, it's just unbelievable. <laughs> you know, Dabo, he has a silver tongue and he, he's a charmer. And, you know, he's been that way his entire life. When he was a kid uh, growing up in Pelham, he was constantly like just this magnet for attention on the playground. There would always be people around him, like just people wanted to be around Dabo. And, um, you know, he went through really hard times. Uh, his dad, Ervil, um, developed a drinking problem and lost his business. They eventually lost their house and he, uh, he, he could become somewhat, uh, of a, of a violent, um, you know, uh, not, not necessarily physically violent, but, uh, but just not pleasant to be around angry yelling when he'd come home from a local watering hole and, and, and little Dabo would crawl out of his window and get up on the roof and just sort of, you know, just wait for everything to cool down. And I mean, you just have this image of him just trying to escape. And then his mom and, and Dabo, they would, they started, uh, you know, sleeping in their car at night, sort of in the woods, uh, after they lost their, after they, they ultimately got evicted from an apartment that they're in cause they couldn't afford the rent. Dabo kind of then um, went, he would sleep at different friends' houses, you know, couch surfing. And, um, he, you know, he just, he never wanted people to know what his situation was. But, um, you know, he tried to hide it as much as possible. Like, you know, like many children of alcoholics, they, they just, they try to hide the, the problems that are going on at home. But eventually, you know, people found out. And then that's when he met Kathleen at a very young age, who's now his wife. And he was really able to pour out his, his, his emotions, his problems. And, and she just played such a major role in his young life, in his development and maturity, uh, from a, uh, sort of a adolescent into, a uh, a young man. And it was Kathleen that he was sitting next to. He goes to Alabama. He was hoping to get a scholarship. He was a really good high school athlete, all around athlete, but, uh, wasn't good enough to earn an SEC scholarship or earn any, any scholarship. And he's sitting in the stands. I think it was, it was his freshman year, second game. And he sees a couple wide receivers drop some balls and he looks to Kathleen and said, you know what? I can be out there. I can do this. And she completely encouraged him. And so Dabo walks on. Uh, there are 60 other, you know, dreamers who are hoping to make the team as, as walk-ons, grueling 5 a.m. workouts. Rich Wingo, who was the uh, strength and conditioning coach at the time, just put them through pure hell. And the, the kind of did kind of the, the things that would be sort of illegal today, but oh, yeah. uh, Dabo, you know, Dabo persisted, and he and he made the team just through sheer will and determination. And that's the thing about him: you have to, no matter how again how you feel about some of the remarks he made, has made in the past, and and uh, he he certainly um, again has become somewhat of a polarizing figure. You can't help but admire 
the things that he has overcome to be where he is today. And it, it is just a, it is, it is truly an incredible story. Okay, I, I want to get back to a lot of great stuff in that answer, but one of the things I want to get back to was about, and specifically your book title, Dabo's World, because I, I've never spent any time around his program, so I can't speak on that, but I've always heard it's extremely unique what he's built at Clemson because of how remote it is and because it does just feel like Dabo on steroids with all the different things that he's been able to, to add there. The difference between doing a book like this, the one that you've done as opposed to an autobiography like many coaches and athletes opt to do is that it's not told in the first person you get to do what john feinstein did in a season on the brink which is sort of like the definitive peek into the life of a high profile polarizing coach bobby knight famously hated that book when it came out has Dabo read your book yet and if so what were his thoughts uh, i don't know if he's read it yet um he chose not to participate he, he never told me that directly. Like, you know, I talked to the sports information director. They told me to talk to his agents. And it turns out his, his agents are here in Birmingham. And I, I met with them, I think, twice in their offices. And, and uh, they're like, yeah, we'll get back to you. We'll get back to you. Well, guess what? They never got back to me. So, you know, in, in some ways, this isn't the first time I've, I've written a book where, the main character hasn't cooperated. I, I did a book on the Manning family called, called the Mannings, uh, the, the fall and rise of a football family and turned out to be a New York times bestseller. And for the most part, the Mannings didn't cooperate. Peyton didn't. It's funny, like seeing Peyton and Eli now do their uh, Monday night football thing. You can just tell how Peyton is the big brother and Peyton is sort of dominates everything. And so it, it was Peyton told Eli, hey, we're not going to cooperate with this book because I think I'm sure they want to do their own book someday, and so they didn't. But you know, Archie, he's just the he's the like, nicest man in the world, and Archie did help me to a degree. Uh, so you know, and in some ways, it's almost liberating from an author's standpoint when the main character says, "I'm not going to, I'm not going to participate," because then you know, all right, that's I, I know the parameters now, and so what you do is. You try to interview as many people who orbit in their universe as possible or in their solar system as possible and, uh, you know, who can shed light on, on sort of, the, again, their, their motivations, uh, stories from their past that are reveal kind of larger truths. And I think that I can't imagine Dabo not liking this book because it, it, it's a it's a very uplifting, powerful story. But, you know, who knows how, how he'll react or even if he doesn't. I, I do know that when uh, Monty Burke wrote a book on Nick Saban and it's a really good book and Saban didn't cooperate. And once Saban sort of went off on the book in the press conference, you know what that did? It just caused the sale of that thing to go through the roof, and I think it reached oh, like yeah. number one, number one on the bestseller list. So, uh, you know, if Dabo wants to comment on the book, hey, I'm I'm, I'm all for it, either positive or negative. <laughs> 
you teach journalism at Alabama, like you said, so obviously you know the program well, I've written multiple books about it. You clearly know Dabo, or at least the, the, the makings of Dabo now as well. And, and I know you've probably been asked this question before, maybe you've thought about this question before, but if I gave you a scale of one to 10, with one being no chance, and then 10 being etched in stone right now, how likely do you think it is that Dabo replaces Saban at Alabama? I'd say one. I just, I, I don't see it happening. You know, I, I do a radio show with Jay Barker, uh, former Alabama quarterback and, and one of Dabo's best friends. And, you know, Dabo has got such a good thing going there. Um, and plus being in the ACC, it's just like, you know, I know they're kind of struggling right now and they, the team just seems a little off, but it's just so much easier to make it to the playoffs uh, where he is. And also you, you never want to be, we've seen this repeatedly throughout college football history. You never want to be the coach that replaces the legend. You want to be the coach that replaces the coach who gets fired. Who <laughs> have to has replaced the legend. I mean, maybe sort of later on in his career, he would, he would give it a thought. And I, I'm certain that um, Greg Byrne, the athletic director, who I greatly admired Alabama, I'm sure uh, when Nick decides to hang it up, and I still think Nick Saban's going to coach, uh, you know, as long as his health holds up uh, five, six, seven years. I mean, I know he's under contract for eight more years. Don't know if he'll reach the end of that. But uh, what Dabo has built at Clemson, and, you know, it's just got his fingerprints all over it, is just, it's just incredible. And um, I, I think it would be tough for him to leave that. At the same time, you know, and all of his family has moved up there, by the way, right? And, and so he, he's, he's, he's got everything he wants sort of right there. But, no, I, I really don't see him coming back. And I also asked Antonio Langham, uh, another teammate of his who who has become a really good friend of mine here in Birmingham. Uh, you know, Langham, you know, he is a cornerback, and, and they've, ASPN has done a 20-for-20 20 20 on, like, the play that changed college football when Langham made the interception in the SEC championship game off of Shane Matthews and returned it for a touchdown. Uh, but Antonio, he he believes as well that, that, that Dabo won't come back and that it's uh, – that he, he's really – his legacy is going to be what he achieves at Clemson and, and how many more national championships he can win there. In non-Dabo things here, I want to want to shift gears a little bit. We, we always think that we have these coaching hires figured out, and really it's, it's a total crapshoot. Scott Frost in 2017 is a wild sliding door to look back on, not just for Nebraska, but for all of college football. I know you were all over that hire and how it was locked in for weeks. I remember I had someone I know very well at UCF who told me a week before the USF game that he already had told his entire staff that he was basically bringing everyone to Nebraska which sort of baffled me hearing that, but reading Ross Dellinger's recent story on Florida hiring Dan Mullen, one of the things that came up was that Florida's administration interviewed Frost and left unimpressed, as they called it. Call me crazy, but doesn't that sound like Frost tanked the Florida interview because he was focused on getting the Nebraska job? Uh, You know, to me, that sounds like revisionist history. Uh, but, uh, I, I, the, according to everything I've heard and, and, and talked to, 
people in the know. That, and uh, hey, I love Ross Dellinger. I think he's one of the best reporters in the country. So I wouldn't, I don't mean to contradict him, but I, I always thought that Florida was uh, their number one target was Frost, and Frost was offered the job. Now maybe, maybe I'm wrong on that one, but. Um, yeah, that, that's really the first I've heard of that. Um, but, I, you know, I, I, I think – I don't think Frost needed to tank the interview. I mean, he had his pick of the litter. He was he was the number one coaching candidate for and, – and Nebraska was just lusting after him. You know, they gave sure. him a, what, a seven-year, $35 million contract, I think. Um, and it's just – it's turned into, quite frankly, a disaster. And uh, he he is the uh, I think the third losingest coach in Nebraska history. Uh, the first coach, if you just go by winning percentage, first coach in sixty years to have three straight losing seasons. Again, just looking back on that that coaching class of hires, you, you'd have to say that that Mullen has done the best. And and Mullen has said some crazy things too. Uh, maybe everybody was just crazy last year because of COVID. I I, I don't know, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he just said some wild, some wild things. Uh, and I've always liked Dan. I've had, I've had many conversations and spent time with him. I think he's a really good guy. Um, he, uh, he, he's, he lives close in the off season to uh, Bruce Arians. Again, BA and I've done, uh, we did a, wrote a book together back in 2017 and he was instrumental in, in an upcoming book I have that's coming out called the season in the sun and uh, Dan's always at, at Bruce's golf tournament at Reynolds Plantation, Georgia. And he's, he's just, he's, he's fun loving guy. You know, it, it's, it's funny how just all, all coaches seem to be a little bit different when they're in a more relaxed environment rather than up on the podium. It's just like Nick Saban, you know, I've, I've played golf with Saban a few times and he's hilarious, you know, and, and he's a great storyteller. And I think with Saban, he, he's a, He's actually an introvert, and so he I don't he doesn't like standing up in front of the cameras. Whereas his his wife Terry, she's the extrovert. She's the one that can really work the work the crowd at, at a social gathering. Whereas Nick feels much more comfortable in, in smaller group settings. And I don't know if you've ever had a chance to talk to to Nick when there's just maybe five or six reporters in the room, but he's just, he's completely different than when he's up at the microphone and he just seems sort of like, you know, tense and, and, uh, you know, when, when, when he snaps, uh, he's usually just trying to, um, uh, make a point to his team. And I know the Alabama beat reporters joke that it's a rite of passage to get yelled at by Nick Saban. Coaches will always be interesting, and you've picked some good subjects to, to write about. And maybe one day you'll be writing a book about Shane Beamer, who I know you've known for, for a while. Do you have a, a good Shane Beamer story? Uh, uh, yeah, you know, Shane and I have played plenty of rounds of golf together. He's just, he's just nice. He is just nice. He's genuine. He's always smiling. Um, he, he has a, a, like Dabo, he's got a magnetic personality. Um, I think he learned a lot from Lincoln Riley and you, you saw him in, in this quote after the Georgia game, right? The quote that went viral <laughs> that, uh, I'm sure a lot of people heard just saying, 
you know, what, like what what happened against Georgia? He's like, well, they got a hundred five stars. <laughs> He's basically saying they're a they're a hell of, they're a hell of a lot better than us. What do you want me to tell you? It's like you can't game plan when the talent and the level of talent is uh, such a huge disparity. But I, I in, in South Carolina, let's face it, 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 that's a tough place to win, um, especially now because Clemson has ascended. And so you're going after some of the same guys in recruiting as Clemson, and that, it's always going to be tough to out-recruit Clemson. So uh, you're going to have to become almost more of a developmental program where you do, you turn a three-star kid into a four-star, and if you can get that four-star, that rare four-star, turn him into a five-star, and and then hopefully you hit on a, a quarterback that can be a program-changing kind of player. Um, but I, I think the world is Shane and, um, yeah, he's always, he's so, he, he comes on our radio show all the time and he, and he doesn't have to, um, but that's just the, the kind of person he is. And I, I think it's absolutely a home run hire. I, I didn't understand why some South Carolina fans were upset by it. Maybe they didn't think he was ready. Uh, I know, I don't think he hadn't been an offensive coordinator or a defensive coordinator, but you know what? Dabo Sweeney had never been a coordinator before. He was a wide receivers sure. coach when, when, uh, when he was named head coach. And, and I remember ESPN did this graphic at the end of the year, like worst head coaching hires of the uh, worst head coaching hires. And, and Dabo was number one on it. And, uh, I think Dabo still has like a screenshot of that somewhere, but, um, you know, he, like everybody, he, he remembers the slights and, uh, of course. uses it as motivation. Dabo just constantly reminds himself of that every single day and walks into, walks onto the field and says, they still think I'm the worst head coaching hire. I got to go prove them wrong. That is Dabo through and through. At least that's, that's the way that he, he comes off. So let's, let's tie it all back to the book here. How long until Beamer beats Dabo? We're we talking 2024, 2025. Should we maybe <laughs> not hold our breath on that? Uh, not hold your breath on that one. Uh, maybe if there's like a, uh, an act of God and there's just a pour, pouring down rain and Clemson fumbles the ball eight times in a game. <laughs> maybe, maybe then if the remnants of a hurricane are blowing through or something, but um, there's, there's a, there's such a gap in, in, in talent, but uh, I'd say that that South Carolina will be competitive to make it competitive against Clemson within three, four years. But, uh, yeah, I wouldn't hold your breath on, on, on South Carolina beating Clemson anytime soon. Lars, this has been excellent. Uh, regardless of, of how anybody who's listening to this feels about Dabo, everyone looking for a great college football book, go buy Dabo's World on sale October 5th. And hey, I, I think sometimes the best book to read is the the book about the person that you, you kind of can't stand. I hated Rick Neuheisel after reading Scoreboard Baby, and I've read that book probably four times since then. So I uh, <laughs> recommend everybody getting out there and doing that. Lars, where can everybody find Dabo's World? You can find Dabo's World at uh, any any bookstore, Barnes and Noble, uh, in, uh, and on Amazon. It should be just widely available. And uh, you know, just looking forward to uh, seeing how it does. And and once um, you know, it, it, it's so strange. If you again, it's my twelfth book. It, you spend so much time on the book, and then you do like two weeks of sort of publicity. 
and then it just sort of disappears and you never hear about it again. And it's just, uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it is the, uh, it's such a bizarre feeling. I've talked to so many other authors about it. I just talked to Jeff Perlman, a good buddy of mine, uh, who's written so many books. He lives out in LA. We grew up at sports illustrated together. We were just talking about that, but, um, yeah, it, it was an enjoyable book to write. And, uh, I, I certainly learned a lot. Certainly, uh, also, uh, the, his story is inspirational. I mean, I, I think this this book could almost fall under the the genre of inspiration as much as football because of everything he has overcome. And it's just he, he never allowed himself to have this "woe is me" attitude. Uh, just like, he, he's the most positive person. I, I, I've, I've come across, you know, how Ronald Reagan used to say that he, you know, he's the most positive man in America. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's morning in America and all, all those phrases that emphasize his positivity. But Dabo, absolutely, 100 uh, percent, probably the most upbeat person I've ever come across. A guy who, you know, even if it's raining out outside to him, it's just all blue skies all the time. <laughs> Awesome, awesome stuff. Really, really appreciate the time. We'll have to do this again soon. All right. Thank you so much for having me. How about this one? I call it bold and bright. More like belongs in the trash. <laughs> Sorry, I must have missed that one. Bold and brash time ahead of week six. Will, I want to start with our guy, Adam Stockton. Remember the other day? We were saying, hey, who was it who said that Kentucky would start off 6-0? and And I guessed it was Adam, but I wasn't entirely sure. Mm-hmm. Turns out it was. Adam posted in the Saturday Down South podcast Facebook group in response to my call for bold and brash predictions. And Adam said the following. My bold and brash from six weeks ago is still true. UK opened 6-0. and Won't be making any more bold and brash statements so as to not disturb my current one. Hashtag BBN. Adam, here's what we're going to do. If Kentucky wins against LSU and does indeed start off 6-0 and for the first time since 1950, which chances of those just went up because we found out that Derek Stingley is out indefinitely. And oh, by the way, Keishon Butte, who was not there for the media portion of practice, also might not be playing in this football game. And oh, yeah, no. <laughs> that's, that's Will reacting live to this. We're recording this early on Wednesday, so we're gonna get more clarity on this later in the week. Yeah, that wouldn't be great for Max Johnson. Thoughts and prayers to him. So if, if Kentucky wins, shoot me a reminder because we're going to have you on next week to discuss how you looked into the crystal ball, how you saw this prediction shaping out for Kentucky. Facebook, Twitter, email cogara at saturdaydownsouth.com. No apostrophe, C-O-G-A-R-A at saturdaydownsouth.com. And we'll make it happen because, buddy, that was an incredible call. And I thought I was high on Kentucky coming into the year, eight and four overall, four and four in SEC play. I had the Cats three and three going into Georgia. Mm-hmm. So that is, there's a very realistic chance that Kentucky is six and zero oh heading into that game against Georgia, a battle of two six and zero oh teams. So, yeah, the minute I heard, the minute I heard that, I like wanted to believe it so bad. Like you, you like if we go back to that, I was like, I, I really, I hope, I hope, like I wasn't slandering it at all. And then like with each week, I was like, oh, oh. and when they beat Florida, I was like, oh, 
this is happening because I know if, again if you can beat Florida you can beat LSU it's very simple exactly uh, yeah so wow no I mean potentially no Boutte would be pretty much a slam dunk so yeah like I, I reply to that it's like I'm actively rooting for this to happen now at this point like I think that's the champion by far and then number two was Arkansas upsets A&M those are to me that, that I can think of off the top of my head my favorite two bold and brash so far which I agreed with that one so mm-hmm. We'll, we'll, we'll say like that, that, that looked a little bit different once Zach Calzada came in. I kind of wanted it to hold up with Haynes King as the starter because that's what the original prediction was, but still nonetheless, a very great, bold and brash prediction. So just kind of goes to show you, you never know. You throw something out there on Bold and Brash, join the Saturday on South podcast Facebook group, and you never know. Maybe it could lead to you coming on the Saturday on South podcast. Let's start with this one. On that same note, Kentucky. Eric Beasley, he says, Kojo gets left in Kentucky. (laughs) If we get a tarmac situation again, I think Kojo would be treated differently than Lane because Lane, at that point in his career with USC, that was an easier place to pile on. And it was like this guy who was just so brash if you will Mm -hmm. and so confident and there's this thing that we as human beings like seeing someone in that spot humbled for whatever reason there's like this little thing in our brains that we see that person who's overconfident to a certain extent when we see them in that moment it makes us feel better about ourselves i don't know why like what part of the brain triggers that but it does I don't know if it'd be the same with that Otron. I, I, I just don't. I, I think it'd be a different sort of feeling. I don't think it's going to happen, but we would react differently to it. Eric, if that happens, I guess you can come on the pod as well. That's pretty Well, bold. the thing about the Lane Kiffin thing, and I guess you could make this argument about, well, no, Ogeron had been a head coach at that point. If Ogeron gets fired, like, who is qualified to even be a head coach on this staff? You want Jake Peets as your head coach? You want you want Devontae Jones? Like that that's all, my only counterpoint is like, yeah, okay, like let's say they get embarrassed, but even on the tarmac, like, you gotta have somebody who knows how to like work, you know, the schedule. Like you gotta have somebody you <laughs> Oh god. You bring Steve Ensminger back. Yep, I was about to say that Ensminger is like slowly getting closer to the program. It's like you know it's Steve coming. Ensminger has great interim head coach vibes. Oh yeah, so I, Big I mean, time. you know what? You know what? I'm now I'm rooting for that. As I started to say that, I was like, <laughs> I know it's going to be Coach E because again, like, love Jake beats to death. That guy can't get a play call in. We don't need him to be the interim right. head coach. Anyway, it's still happening. Yeah, you're exactly sure right. is. Steve Ensminger, I want whatever odds those are if he becomes the interim coach if Coach O gets left in Kentucky. This one, Chris Milan says, Urban Meyer somehow survives the whole season and doesn't get fired now. Speaking of people who we root against to fail, this is yes. the top of that list. <laughs> that is so telling that that's the point where we're at, where Urban being predicted to finish the season is now a bold prediction, but it is. <laughs> it's it's bad. And for what it's worth, everybody keeps throwing out. Every, every time something goes wrong with the Jags, oh, USC's happening. Urban's not going back to college. He's not. He's just not. Urban's gonna fade off into the sunset after his one year in Jacksonville, and he's gonna realize, oh, you know what? Maybe I should just like not be a head coach in charge of men and be asked to make decisions. Urban's best career is, is, is on TV. Urban was great on TV. He really was. Oh, yeah. And we talked to Dave Pash about that when we had him on over, over the summer. But one of the things that I think is kind of lost in the shuffle is he's an incredibly smart football mind. There's a reason he's gotten to this point. He's gotten so many of these opportunities. 
He's just the worst person at apologizing in the history of apologizing. The, the single worst. So if Urban goes, Urban's not getting another big time head coaching job because quite frankly, I don't think he really wants one unless somehow he gets separated from the family, the family contract gets ripped up. I, I don't know, whatever. But I'm not banking on that happening. But I, I like that bold prediction though. I, I agree that I think Urban survives the entire year. And then at the end of the season, he gets fired. Man, that's got to go spend time with his family excuses. Not looking good right now because he's spending time with anybody but his family. <laughs> Uh, spend a little time with the grandkids, Urban? Not so much. Trey Smith. I don't think this is the same Trey Smith as the one who was an offensive lineman for Tennessee because this is a Tennessee-related prediction, but I, I think it's different Trey Smith, common name. Trey Smith says, Tennessee beats South Carolina at home by at least 24, adding some hype to the Ole Miss-Tennessee game the following week. I forgot that's the following week. I'm so entrenched with week six and what's upcoming on Saturday that I forgot that the Lane Knoxville reunion, it's coming. It's gonna be great. Beating South Carolina at home by 24, I'd say is bold because as we talked about a couple weeks ago, Tennessee does not exactly light up the scoreboard at home against SEC competition. And South Carolina's defense is actually pretty good. So I think that is that does qualify as a bold prediction to say that um, more than double up the double up the spread there. If Kentucky, or not Kentucky, if Tennessee does that, we're probably having even more optimistic views of Josh Heupel's offense and what it's capable of, and it would add some hype to that Ole Miss game. All of a sudden, Tennessee fans would be feeling real confident that hey, if you can catch him on the wrong, if you can catch Lane on the wrong day, you just kind of never know. Not not a not a bad bull prediction there. All right, um, let's see. <laughs> this is funny on, on a couple of levels. Will Keithler says LSU beats Kentucky. I know LSU's only three and a half point underdog, but LSU was the underdog. And what if I had told you coming into the season that a bold prediction would be LSU beating Kentucky? <laughs> That's where we're at. That's why we update these and we do them throughout the season and not just before the season. Hunter Ragland says, Auburn scores 10 on Georgia. Hunter, I agree with you, man. I agree, that's exactly what I have. Huh. Scoring yeah, a touchdown on Georgia. First team defense hasn't allowed a touchdown yet this year. This is backups who allowed that fourth quarter touchdown against South Carolina. Mm -hmm. Well, 10 points for Auburn, can you see it? That's, you know, that's, there's just levels to this, man. If they can get in that end zone, I feel like that's a pretty good place to be at this point if you're Auburn. Oh, yeah. Let's take away celebration penalties if you score a touchdown yes. against Georgia. Just in general, yeah. But, but if you score on Georgia, you, you get to do whatever you want. Anything goes. I don't care if, if you want to throw that ball through the stadium, Joe Milton style. Do whatever you want to do in that moment because that is earned, my friend. If you're getting pay dirt against the dogs, yeah, celebrate. And it's, oh, we got a timer going off here. We're good. We got a lot of things going on today. Sorry about that. And it's it's self-policing too, because if you celebrate on Georgia and there's no flag, they're just going to get angry. <laughs> so it's like, That's George, true. celebrate all you want on Georgia. Yeah, you're better off not scoring on Georgia. That way the wrath won't be as bad afterwards. They'll bring this, just bring the starters back in or something like that but 10 points for Auburn would be a big victory this weekend. Be a sign that Auburn's offense is actually doing some things pretty well. Yeah. All right, Sarthik says, uh, Sarthik Sharma says, Arkansas beats Ole Miss and runs for over 250 yards. What a bounce back that would be for the Hogs. So 
if Ole Miss's defense, which I thought played all right last week, did not have the, the chunk plays allowed against Alabama, kept everything kind of in front. It wasn't necessarily getting gashed nearly to the level that it did the year before in that game. Uh, of course, they struggled up front with stopping Brian Robinson, who just ran through tackle after tackle. But that is probably where some of this prediction is, is based from, at least. Arkansas's ground game needs to bounce back. Traylon Smith, if you're gonna talk that smack to Georgia, you gotta be able to back it up. And I don't know if he has a bounce back game in this one, but he kind of needs it. They need to get that ground game going because they just don't have the options in the pass catch in, in, in the passing game outside of Traylon Burks. So I'd feel more confident about saying that if I knew that KJ Jefferson was gonna be a full go. But that's a little that might be a little bit tough to get there because almost defense is actually all right. Yeah, better than what we expected. All right, we already talked about the one that Adam had. Uh, Tanner Starr says, Penn State finished the season eight and four. And he says, sure. losses. Yeah, sure, that's, I mean, not SEC, but still kind of somewhat SEC relevant if and when James Franklin gets offered the LSU job at season's end. Um, losses to Iowa, Michigan, Michigan State, and Ohio State is what Tanner is predicting. Sean Clifford returns to Sean Clifford form. I don't think Penn State's going eight and four, and I, I've been down on James Franklin, the in-game coach. I think he's a lot better of a recruiter, a lot better at building up a program than actually making some of those in-game calls. I think Iowa wins this weekend, and I think Penn State is uh, suffers its first Big Ten loss, but I also think Penn State beats Ohio State. So I guess I'm not fully on board with that. That's my bold and brash prediction about Penn State. And that was a lot of Penn State talk. And this is Adam the Baker. Penn State Up North podcast. Exactly. Adam Baker says, uh, commentators find a way to include the Ohio State and Clemson in the top 10. Uh, okay, so I think he's, those are two, I think those are two separate thoughts there. He's saying about Ohio State that they're gonna call them the Ohio State maybe in that game related to Maryland and that Clemson is somehow gonna get into the top 10. Clemson's not getting into the top 10. Oh wow! I'm I can't read. Okay, sorry. <laughs> that's, With all due respect to Adam, he could have worded this a little bit better. I think because uh, Ohio State is already in the top ten. I believe Are they. I haven't looked at the AP the, the AP rankings that much. They might be in the top ten. They got to be. Everybody lost. Like literally, yeah, we got like BYU in the top ten now. That's true. Um, but I think that was more of saying like, oh, we're gonna do what we can to bring Ohio State and Clemson back to relevance, even if they kind of lack it at this point. That is what it is. Tommy Odom says, UGA defense scores more than Auburn's offense. Not really that bold. A defensive touchdown or a safety, which never rule out the safety with the Georgia defense. Georgia defense had a safety against South Carolina when Jordan Davis just sat on poor Luke Doty in the end zone. That wasn't fair. That should have been illegal. I don't know if that happens again to Bo Nix or if Bo Nix does the Dan Orlovsky run out of the back of the end zone. Running against that Georgia defense, I could see that happening. Dan Orlovsky running out of the back of the end zone, I didn't think would have such a big role in my life in 2021. It happened and I thought it was funny and then I forgot it for like 10 years. And then it oh, just it came back. A lot. And yeah. I'm like, no, but now that he's on TV, like I don't really think about him ever until he got kind of on TV and I was like, that sure did happen. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, this isn't, 
I'll be honest. There, there are people I like calling a game more than Dan Orlovsky. I think he's great in studio. Some of his in-depth NFL breakdowns. When he and Ryan Clark get going, those guys are really fun to watch. But I am not really big on Dan Orlovsky's proclamations in-game. I'll just kind of leave it at that. Ross Elkins. Urban Meyer replaces Coach O by the end of the season. Buddy. <laughs> it would blow up. Our, our site would get overloaded with traffic. I'm not. I wouldn't hate it. We just end the podcast. They're just the world. The world would isn't ready for that type of madness. Not gonna happen. But I, I do like chaos, and I wouldn't hate it. Yeah, I think you nailed it that like he needs to be on TV. He had his life so he was gonna ride into the sunset, bro. And then he got his pride got in the way, he took this Jags job. I yeah, there's a lot of fun people that could replace Kojo. Don't I hope one of them is not Urban Meyer, especially considering where he's at with the Jags locker room and where LSU's locker room is right now. I don't think they would respond too well with a person like that. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, don't uh, don't know about that. Don't know if that's the the culture you want to establish in Baton Rouge. They would probably um, unionize. Is probably what would happen, and there would be a big problem. Anyway, I'm I'm gonna also uh, throw out that Urban's past behavior with handling situations of a Title IX matter would suggest that Scott Woodward would not exactly break the bank on him. I'll leave it at that. Let's end with this one. Matthew Gordon says Kentucky beats LSU by at least 21. If that happens, Ed O'Dron might get left at the tarmac. There's there are certain there are certain losses that are that are tougher to accept, and Kentucky is one of them. Because not to take any anything away from Kentucky, because they are showing that they are at a different place than they were in the 20th century than five years ago, even 2017. If we want to go back to to that, but. There are certain times that even when a, a team like that is good and you're a team that has been good throughout the 21st century like LSU has with the exception of last year, it just kind of hits you in a different sort of way, right? Like that sting is just kind of there. And Florida fans experienced this last week and the point that I kind of brought up was like, well, Dan Mullen, yeah, he, had, he, he suffered the two losses to Kentucky's two and two against Mark Stoops. None of those previous Florida coaches faced a Kentucky program that was at the level that Stoops has it at right now. So it's a little bit tougher, like that the context is important. It would still sting really badly for LSU to lose by 21 points. Matthew Gordon's a big Kentucky guy though. So he's been he's been singing the praises for of the Cats for for a very long time. I'm done defending the LSU team. I'll, if they lose by 40, <laughs> it won't surprise me. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, anything could happen this weekend. I will be there. I'm so pumped, so fired up to be in Lexington for this one. It's going to be great. We're still going to be recording as usual on Sunday. Hopefully, pod will be out early Sunday afternoon. Going to have a full recap of all the festivities. Leave us a five-star review if you have not done that yet. Like, subscribe, go subscribe to our newsletter, Saturday.Football. Go subscribe to College Football Uncensored and Saturday Lives Forever. Maurice Claret episode is up. Go listen to that. Go do that wherever you get your podcast join the facebook group hear your name red on air with figuring it out or bold and brash thanks guys talk soon